You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 108. Today, we're asking the question, could a four-day working week lead to happier, healthier, and safer workers? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So today's question comes from one of our listeners, Bridget, so thank you for that via LinkedIn, who sent us a link to this paper, which was released recently, and we're going to have a look at it. We're always looking for ideas, so if you do have a topic, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or our feedback email address at the end of each episode. And you know, sometimes uh, there just isn't high-quality research that we can base an episode on. So if it takes Drew or my interest, we might go and try and find a paper. And I guess this one isn't... I guess we'll get to the paper after we do... Maybe we'll do the background first, Drew. So do you want to give us a bit of background to the, I guess, the five-day working week and what we've got today? Thanks, David. Yes. So, so we, we started off with this paper and talking about the four-day working week, we thought we ought to like first explain why we've got a five-day working week. And that took me down a little bit of a rabbit hole and we've got time-limited episodes. So I'll try not to go right back to the agrarian revolution. Uh, l- let's just talk about the industrial revolution. So I, I think to, to contextualize this topic, we do have to sort of start with the fact that it's kind of a weird thing to sell your own labor for money. And gradually over history, that's become more and more formalized. You know, it starts off with the idea of peasants and quite informal arrangements. But then once we get to factories and mines, that's when we start having shifts. And once we've got shifts, we've got very sharp lines between when you're working and when you're not working. Uh, When the machines are running, you've got to have people there. They turn on at a certain time, they turn off at a certain time, you get paid for the time that you're there. And in those early factories, people are working a hell of a lot. Your best estimates are that prior to that, most people were working pretty long days, but only about half the days in the year. And even during those long days, they're taking lots of breaks. So, you know, you imagine your typical farm worker has to get up early, has to do jobs, then they take a break. And then they do more jobs and they take a break. They're not working constantly that whole time. Uh, But when you're in one of these 19th century factories, Pretty much every week of the year is a work week. Uh, you know, early on, we didn't even have this notion of holidays. So you're working most weeks every year. You're working around 70 hours a week. So that's typically long days for six out of the seven days. But ever since we had that, we've had people pushing back. So the labor movement started about the same time as the factories started. And one of the earliest positions was this idea of let's make it eight hours work, eight hours rest, eight hours recreation, and let's make it five days a week. And so you have the ends of the week, Saturday and Sunday, off. That was never sort of scientific. It was never formal. It was just a neat and symmetrical way or position to advocate for. And it gradually became more and more standardized, more and more popular. David, I don't know about you. I had heard sort of growing up that Henry Ford was an innovator. In, in this sort of like 40-day work week. He was actually one of the latest adopters. And like a lot of things, Henry Ford managed to get famous for <laughs> copying off other people's ideas. So, you know, doing this in 1926 was actually just before we started having laws making it mandatory for everyone. There'd been a century of advocacy up to that point. I think Ford did uh, become famous for paying above award wage. 
But I guess he and the organization were of the view that if we pay our people more money, then more people can buy our Model T cars. So we'll get that money back anyway. Yeah, I think that's what Ford was really interesting is he sort of tied this to remembering that workers are consumers as well. And that if you want people to buy your own cars, then you've got to pay them enough to be able to buy that car. You want people to have holidays so that they can consume products. And so he sort of saw the whole cycle of capitalism. I think most people have got fairly more humanitarian ideas about why we should have the 40-hour week, as in people will deserve it, not people will buy our products. Um, But sort of 40 hours became the position. And then it's gradually been negotiated down. So in Australia, the standard is around 38 hours. Uh, In France, it's 35 hours. In the US and Japan, it's still 40 hours. Um, But remember that this standard week isn't actually how long people work for. Uh, In a lot of places, it's just how we negotiate overtime. A lot of people are still working 70-hour weeks. It's just that the 40-hour week means that they get paid extra for those extra 30 hours. So sometimes it works as a limit on work. Sometimes it's just a sort of fairly arbitrary negotiating position. So, Drew, we we have what we have, and it's evolved, like you said, over the last, well, it's been pretty static for 100 years or so, but it's, it's evolved the way that it is. And then we've had, I guess, well, for probably most of the last decade, um, but definitely accelerated as uh, by necessity through COVID. You know, this more and more this idea that in some occupations that uh, are pushed for much more flexibility around work, uh, and I guess this this is a form of flexibility which is actually changing the amount the amount of work we do. Lots of other flexibility ideas look at the ways of working uh, and and shaping the the way that people work in terms of when and where and and how. Um, but this is really saying no, 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 no. We, are, we overall are going to work a four-day work week, which is actually work 20% less time. And so I guess this is fairly arbitrary. It's just people can have a three days off instead of four days, although that's not the approach that every organization takes to the four-day work week. But I guess this starts as just an idea, I guess. It doesn't start on the back of any scientific theory that looks at what the human body should and can tolerate or anything like that or how long we can be productive for. Yeah, it's a bit like the 40-hour work week. The four-day week is a fairly radical proposal initially. And the idea is just to make that radical proposal seem more and more normal over time. It's important to acknowledge that this is a pre-COVID idea. This isn't a response to COVID. This is, if anything, something that was gaining momentum in the couple of years before COVID and then had to be put on hold for a couple of years and now is coming back very massively as companies realize that they need to incentivize people to come back to work. They're competing with labor and they can't offer flexibility because people are in currently maximum flexibility mode and they can't offer more money because the companies can't afford the extra money. So this is a way that companies can sort of offer something back to workers that might possibly, and this is a question we'll get to, be sort of cost neutral for the business that the business doesn't actually have to make any sacrifices to give workers something that's good for the workers. Yeah, so Drew, that's, that's the, I guess, where it's come from, where the ideas come from. And I guess what we're going to do in this episode is focus on on two central claims. One is that we can significantly reduce the number of hours worked whilst maintaining the same productivity. So like you said, from an organizational perspective, same pay, same productive output in with 20% less time from the worker. And then that this reduction in hours worked will lead to other benefits for the employee, particularly around their well-being and, and a bunch of other individual-related outcomes, not, not associated with, with the work they do, but definitely impacted by the amount of work that they do. Yep. So if we can tick both of those boxes, 
then we have a proposal that should be very, very seriously considered by any business because you, the business case would be it's not going to cost us anything in terms of productivity and it's going to be more attractive to employees. Therefore, we get lower turnover, we meet our obligations to our employees. And David, I don't know about you, but I'm not very cynical about CEOs. I think most people who run businesses want to believe that they're the good guys and want to do well by their own workforce. And this is, if it works, something that genuinely is something that a company can do to better look after its people, to show them that it values them. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, like you, I think organizations are quite moral and the leaders of organizations today, at least in 2023, are, are very moral, at least the ones that, that, I, uh, that I interact with. And so, Drew, I wouldn't mind getting you to introduce this paper because it was something that was published. Uh, Link was published on LinkedIn and shared with with us for the podcast. And normally we do journal publications, but this is, I guess, more of an industry white paper. So do you want to sort of introduce the paper and and a bit of the background for the authors and the institutions? Okay. So, so this is a little bit of an unusual one to go through. There've been a number of recent high profile trials of the four day week, and there've been three in particular that have been led by roughly the same group of people. We're going to be focusing on the UK trial. There was also an Australian one. I think the third one was European rather than North American, although I could be wrong about that. But the Australian one's not yet published, and the UK one is the one that's sort of getting most attention. So it's a collaboration between several academic and non-academic organizations. Uh, the lead on the paper is an independent consultancy called Autonomy. It claims to be a sort of dual research agency and a consultancy, but as far as I can tell, it doesn't do any peer-reviewed published research. Uh, so it's really a consultancy slash advocacy organization. Uh, the paper, if you're looking for it, is called The Results Are In, the UK's four-day week pilot. It was published in February 2023 and was published as a non-peer-reviewed white paper. So that means it's like got a lot of the form of an academic paper. It uses a few features that you're not allowed to do in academic publishing, like case study boxes, which I think should be in academic publishing, but often aren't. It's got a reference list. It's got footnotes. It's, it's got like most of the academic things, except for the sort of formal method section um, and the peer review. The authors, so the autonomy authors, a sort of mix of academic and non-academic, but their backgrounds are in political philosophy rather than organizational research, which kind of fits in the motives of the paper, but they don't have expertise in doing organizational research. Then there are teams from Boston College who did a lot of the quantitative work and University of Cambridge who did a lot of the qualitative work. Uh, so the lead quantitative author, author uh, Professor Juliet Shaw, she has a massively prestigious and long career as an economist. Most recently, she's looked at things like sharing economies and gig employment. The lead qualitative author, uh, Dr. David Frain, is a sociologist uh, focusing on the anti-work movement. So hopefully that gives a bit of indication that the team's got a lot of relevant expertise, but a lot of it is very with a certain political slant to it. And the team is very large, so you don't really know how much influence each person might have had. You know, so it's often a bit unclear in these sort of cases is this large team sort of acting as internal peer review or are they actually like having a hand in the design of the work? And in this case, I sort of get the feeling, although I could be wrong, that the overall design of this thing and, in, and most of the authorship of the report comes from the consultancy. 
And the two academic teams sort of did the quantitative running of the surveys and the running of the qualitative work. But that doesn't prevent their work potentially being slightly spun in the final report. So I don't want to sort of slight the authors from the academic side and say that they've done anything dodgy when it may just be other people reporting on what they've done. And so, Drew, I think it's important that we also keep in mind, um, as much as we don't know, these researchers and and research consultants. Um, from the outset, though, it may not be a neutral evaluation. The, this this team and the, and the people who make up the team are already advocating for a four-day week at the start of the program. And so, you know, this research is really about supporting that existing position. So I guess it doesn't mean automatically that uh, that that this isn't good academic work, but we need to keep that in mind, particularly when we're looking at uh, what the data says and then what the conclusions that are drawn from that data are. Yeah. So, so just like when we look at who writes a paper, we don't use that to disqualify it. You know, very junior people can do really good work, but we use it to work out that we need to be more careful about looking at, for example, how they represent a particular field of study. In the case of people who might be motivated, we need to look at how they spin certain statistics and go back and sort of look at the statistics ourselves and think, what are the statistics saying versus how are they being spun? And so, Drew, I might just describe a little bit about what the researchers did and then get your thoughts on that as that the research design component. Is that all right with that? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. I guess it's called a trial. Even in the heading, it says the trial. But I guess it's not really a controlled trial. Uh, you've got in the notes that it's more of a pilot scheme. It's go and find companies who are prepared to do this and give them a bit of a frame for how to do it and, and what we're going to measure. So it's not really a trial at all. There's 61 companies in the UK uh, and the sort of the research phase ran from June until December 2022, so the end of last year. The companies didn't actually implement a standardised four-day week. Uh, they got to choose for themselves what they did uh, within certain parameters, um, and we'll share that through, the, through this episode. There was self-reported company data at the beginning and the end, representing the six months before and the six months after the trial. Self-reported company data, at, sorry, employee survey data uh, at the beginning and end of the trial, 44 out of the 61 companies. And then a different employee survey in the middle. And then there were some interviews with some senior representatives of 23 out of the 61 companies before and after the trial. So Drew, as far as research design goes based on the research question or the claims that we're trying to understand, what are, your, what are your thoughts? So for what they're trying to do, it makes sense to run a pilot scheme where you get as many people involved as possible and you give them flexibility to implement it in a way that suits their company. But the trouble is that there's a reason why we like to do controlled trials. And that reason is that things change in any company over six months. And if you consider particularly the second half of 2022, every company in the world is going to be different at the end of that six months. When it comes to things like employee well-being, employee work-life balance, how much time workers are spending at home, and company revenue, because every single company is coming out of COVID. And that particularly matters when it comes to just doing it over six months, because we have seasonal effects as well. You have, you, most companies have got a different performance in the first six months of the year to the second six months of the year. Now, they've done a little bit of work, but actually quite uneven work to try to balance that, to try to take that into account. Because the fact is, the only way to properly take it into account is to have a controlled trial, is to have at least as many companies not doing this and see what happens to those companies. 
rather than just comparing the companies within the trial. So that's a first sort of like big methodological issue, which is going to color all of these results is the overall design is tailor made to get a positive result. You will always, if you just do before and after intervention, see a positive result, particularly if you measure lots of different variables and you get to pick and choose which ones you use. And then the other big problem is that this is a very, and we'll get into the sort of mix of companies, but these are just anyone who decided to take part in the trial. So it's a massive range of different businesses. And when they're reporting the results, they lump the results from these businesses all together, which kind of hides any effects that might go up or down for, in, for individual companies in different circumstances. So if you were trying to like tailor make a pilot that would be a success and let you claim that this is a success, this is the way to do it. If you're trying to do a very fair evaluation, then the overall structure just doesn't work. And so Drew, I think, I think that's, um, that's a great point. And particularly a lot of the qualitative data sample is, is very tiny. Only a third of the companies got spoken to and only one senior representative who was already motivated to participate in the trial and would like to think that anything that their company does is successful. So I know that's balanced out with the surveys, some survey data, but I guess these data sets aren't really in the in the shape that we'd like them to be, notwithstanding the, the overarching methodological issues. Yeah. And, and right from the very start, we can see some of the spin start to creep in. So there are three separate numbers here. The first number is 70 companies which is the companies who agreed to do the trial. And then we've got 61 companies, the ones who actually successfully went ahead with the implementation. And then we've got 44 companies, which are the ones that actually gave data back. And the study likes to switch between these three numbers, depending on when it best suits them. You really, if you've only got data from 44 companies, then this is a trial of 44 companies, not 61. But it keeps switching back to 61 every time they want to pad their figures and show how good it was. So Drew, let's talk about these companies and what they did, because one of the first challenges is that on one hand, it's a, it's a wide range of industries. You've got eight marketing firms, seven professional services, five charities, five training, five insurance. But if we think about the representative sample of you know, UK industry, you've got no operational organizations here. You've got no logistics businesses, no, no production businesses, no, no what we'd call sort of physical, operational, high hazard type of industries. These are white collar jobs that can be done from home and aren't really time sensitive to support critical physical operations. Yeah. One or two of these companies even need to maintain a five-day office to deal with the public and clients. Most of them are not even in that position where they've got a sort of outward facing part of the company. So it's a, it's a very broad range. They've got a lot of different businesses, but it's not particularly representative. And so Drew, half the companies have 25 or fewer staff and only five of the companies have more than 100 employees. So even though we've got you know 2,900 or nearly 3,000 staff involved across all of these companies, we need to remember that more than half of those come from just the five big ones. So if we're looking at um, this is, again, is depending on how these numbers get reported, we could be talking, you know, half our sample coming from five organizations in, instead of, you know, 61. Yeah. So, so again, good, good that we've got a diversity of companies, but it can hide some real differences between those companies. And so to participate in the trial, like we said, companies had to commit to a meaningful reduction in work time and maintain current employees' pay. And there are a few different examples. You know, one company shut down entirely for an extra day a week, like, you know, having Friday as a genuine weekend where offices were closed and the company was all shut down at the same time. So the company works a five-day week, but like you said, Drew, each person only works four days to maintain coverage. 
staff would work on average of 32 hours a week, but this would go up and down as there was demands over the six-month uh, period for the for the trial. And I guess only we only know what 44 of companies did because only 44 companies said what they were actually doing. And so within that, Drew, it looks like you know more than half kind of really did implement a genuine four-day week with either the company completely shutting down or each worker having a designated extra day off. But if we remember, that's only 22 out of 44 out of 61 out of 70. So we're now talking about 22 companies out of an initial pool of 70 where we know that they genuinely went to a four-day week. Yeah, David, I don't know about you, but I was actually surprised by how high that number was, given how flexible their definition was that they started with. You know, everyone just has to have a meaningful reduction. It doesn't have to be a four-day week. Actually, you know, that they did have a solid base of 22 companies who went all in. And I wish they'd done the report on those 22 companies. You know, these are the ones who'd like fully embrace the concept of let's either shut down the company or let's have a rolling shutdown where you know, half the employees take off on Monday, the other half take off on Wednesday or something like that. So a lot of companies did actually do a fairly radical trial, but they're sort of hidden in this swamp of other companies. So you know, we don't know, for example, whether the five big companies are included in those 22 or not. And also to control other variables because, you know, how much time, you know, having people who physically you shut down their system access and their email access and everything like that at 5 p.m. and didn't turn it back on until like 9 p.m. the next morning. So even we actually knew that people were genuinely working reduced hours, not just being at work for reduced hours, but still working the same. So, um, and we'll get to some of that in the results as well. So let's, let's maybe talk about the results because the paper title is true. The results are in. So I guess the bulk of, our listeners are going to want to know, like, what what were the results and what do we think about those? So, like you said earlier, seventy companies signed up, nine abandoned the idea. So we got sixty one companies that actually implemented something. At the end of the program, at the end of the the research, let's call it that, five said they weren't continuing with the arrangements, uh, and eighteen said they've decided to make the policy permanent. So what we've actually got is a huge number of companies in the middle, almost fifty companies that actually haven't decided whether they're going to continue or not. So if these results were as compelling as they are, I would have thought we'd have more than 18 companies at the end who have said, yes, we're going to continue with this as a permanent policy. Yeah. And I mean, that's fair enough. You know, a six-month trial, no matter how good it might seem, I would not be committing immediately as a company to, I'm going to make this a policy. And to be fair, like a lot of the companies were doing their own data collection and they might need time to do their own analysis before they make the decision. I would suspect that most of them, if they've got some idea, would just want the trial to run a little bit longer. They'd want it to run over a full year so they saw how things worked over the whole cycle of operations for a year. Maybe see how things sort of emerge out of COVID, how things are developing um, before they make any sort of commitment. So it doesn't surprise me that most people are non-committal. But yeah, I love the fact that they sort of like drew as their headline statistics. 56 out of 61 are continuing with the four-day week even though only 18 of those had actually said that they were making like a deliberate committed decision to continue with it rather than just, oh, we haven't stopped at the moment the trial stopped. Yeah. So I guess I'm a little bit more cynical than you, Drew, about what some of what the actual outcomes were in some of these organizations, because I think management makes big decisions with less than six months of, of research uh, <laughs> trial inside their business. So yeah, David, just before we move on, I just, I just want to give the most pessimistic, cynical view, which is to remember only... 22 of the companies have like gone full on in the four day week. And I would love to know the sort of like cross tabs on of those 22, where do they fall in the continuing, not continuing? 
versus have abandoned altogether partway through. Yeah, so if it's eighteen, if it's eighteen out of those twenty-two, then that is a very different thing to if none of those twenty-two have have are in that eighteen. Exactly. And so I guess there's some other things which is in the aggregate that we haven't got the raw data for, and revenue is one of those things. So we don't have individual company data, so we just don't have the breakdown. And I guess white papers, you know, often don't do that because, and I guess if you could imagine this paper being sent to Drew or something to do some peer review, say we have to see the data. We we don't have enough data reported to actually know whether the claims can be made the way they are or not. So you know, even revenue data is you know they say they weighted the revenue data by company side and prov- provided the weighted result, but we don't know you know what data relates to which company relates to which pilot program. Yeah, and th- th- there are lots of ways of doing this which preserve the anonymity of the companies. You know, at the very least, they could have done something like said you know of the fifty six companies. 20 went up in terms of revenue, 20 went down. Of the ones that went up, some went up by this much, some went up by that much. Easy to do, but instead they've sort of given this weighted average that we've got no idea. You know, it could be dominated by one of the five big companies could have done really, really well, and everyone else could have done really, really badly. And you'd get the same average as if everyone had gone up by a little bit. And I really wish they'd done that for their own sake, because if you look carefully at the revenue data, it looks really, really bad. So for 23 companies, they've got data for the six months before and the six months after. And they say there was a revenue increase of 1.4%, which sounds, okay, that's positive. Revenue's gone up over a period when inflation in the UK was 10%. So on average, everyone went badly backwards compared to the UK. Well, again, revenue is not the right thing because if you're looking at, at wages and input costs going up by 10% during the period, then the weighted margin of all of these organizations would be significantly down. Yeah. So, so the reason why they're using revenue is to try to get some sort of uh, comparison and to have companies that are willing to share the data. Um, and that's one of the real difficulties with this sort of multi-company trial is it really depends on people being very, very open about their experiences. And none of these companies want to look bad. So none of them are willing to share nitty gritty operational details. So that may be something that's kind of forced on the researchers to use just the best indicator of productivity they've got. And, you know, revenue is not perfect, but it might just be all that they had. Yeah. And so, Drew, they did a comparative um, period. So obviously, there's a certain time of the year is different for different businesses. So, you know, what you would usually do here is take the second half of 2022 when the study was going and compare that to the second half of 2021. They sort of reported this 35% increase in revenue from the same comparable prior period. Uh, yes. So, so just to be clear, so 23 companies, they did six months before, six months after. For another 24, they decided that wasn't a fair comparison. And so they got a comparable period and used that instead. So that's what I said. They did some attempt to sort of fix this seasonal thing. And um, the trouble is that there is no fair comparison for the second half of 2022, because even if you take the same period from the year before, that's right in the middle of COVID. Of course, all of these companies, their revenue went up from 2021 to 2022. But I'm pretty sure if you picked any company, you're taking into account things like um, government subsidies for COVID and grants and things like that, that you know, everyone had very different business in 2021, 2022. So Drew, let's talk about the results from the staff. So, so we, we see we've got some challenges with the company level data. So saying this, this was the outcome at a company level, we, we, we sort of don't have the insights that we'd like to have um, knowing which company went in which direction and over which and what was their baseline or what's a comparable point for them. 
And then at a staff level, so we we've supposedly got two thousand nine hundred staff in these in these companies, but you know roughly two and a half thousand actually got sent the first survey, or, or two thousand five hundred and forty eight, and only seventy seven percent of those completed it. So if you do the math, that's I don't know, you're better than me at the math, but you know less than two thousand or about two thousand or so completed it, and only seventy percent of those completed the second survey as well. So that 2,900 staff probably comes down to about 1,500 by the time we take how many of those staff did both surveys. Your middle maths is pretty good there, David. It works out to about uh, between 1,300 and 1,400, depending on how you count it. So a bit less than half of the participants, uh, which in terms of company surveys is actually pretty good. The trouble is that we don't really know where those staff are from in that set of companies. We don't know if like some companies were really good at sending staff back. You know, it is possible that those half entirely come from the big companies. It's possible that that ignores a couple of the big companies. We just don't know. So we could have 40, 40 small companies with a 10% response rate or something like that. Yeah. So, so let, let's sort of put that caveat on it. But then for the rest of it, let's just assume that these are representative because unless we make that representative, there's just no point in having that rest of the conversation. So let's say that this is the general experience of people across these companies. First thing to note is that our sample is very female, very white, and very educated. And I think that's a result of the type of companies that participated rather than skewing the sample itself. So I think these just are tend to be like professional services type companies, charities. They just don't represent your average manufacturing, construction, shop floor type company. So that's the sort of business that we're talking about. But you know, maybe that's you. Maybe you are an office work type company, or at least you're thinking about the four day week for your office staff. And this population is probably fairly representative of office staff. Weirdly, more than 10% of them don't live in the UK. I'm still trying to work out where that one comes from, whether they like had some problem that the survey was a little bit too accessible, or whether these companies just broadcast the survey, including to their overseas staff. But anyway, more than 10% of the people who responded don't actually live in the UK. <laughs> okay, let, let, let's sort of ignore the sampling problems and just get on to the direct results. So what's happening to people who are experiencing the four-day week? Well, great nice idea to start with is that they're working less hours. <laughs> so that means that at least we're getting some sort of intervention. You know, the official change has actually resulted in them working less. On average, it's sort of shifting from 38 to 34. So not actually creating a full day off, creating about half a day off. If you ask the question a little bit differently and ask them how many days they're working, it changes from around 4.9 to 4.5 days, which is less than half a day off, which is kind of interesting, which kind of says people don't actually know how much they work. But this is what you'd expect, which is that the radical change in policy has created a real change in less work, but it's not as big a change as the radical policy. People are still coming in on that day that they've supposedly gone off. And they're still doing that a heck of a lot of the time. David, I honestly don't know how that compares to how often people currently work on Saturdays. I'm sort of used to the academic environment where pretty much everyone works at least one day on the weekend. How about your business? Would your workers work? Yeah, I think weekends are a bit... I mean, this is this is what's driving behind this study and, and you don't have to go too far in the mainstream media to read about burnout, burnout and hours of work and things like that. So I think... Uh, I think yeah, I, I think this sampling representative and thirty percent of people reported no change in their working hours or or that they were working more. And I guess seventy percent, seventy one percent of people reported, you know, that they were actually working less. So I think we've got to take that at face value that seventy percent of those people said, yes, we're working less than we were. Um, and maybe that is a positive thing to come out of this study is that it really does take a radical change in policy 
to achieve a small reduction in actual hours worked. That if we try small things to reduce hours worked, maybe they just have no difference at all. You know, to get people to take half a day or a third of a day less work, we've got to tell them to take an entire day off. And I think, Drew, even if you remember that 22 companies actually fully embraced this and, and shut down for a day or rostered someone for a full day off. So this idea that on average, working hours went from 38 to 34 or half a day. If you take those 22 companies out, and again, we don't know how many people came from which company who actually maybe did get a genuine eight-hour type reduction, there's a lot of organizations that did a radical policy change for maybe one hour difference or less or, or slightly more. Yeah, or to look at it more charitably, maybe for the 22 companies, it did work really well. And they're actually underselling their own results by trying to beef up the number of companies. That maybe, you know, if you strip down to just those 22 companies, it actually looks a lot better. Just some other outcome measures for individuals. So on average, they reported a small reduction in stress. I guess some more stressed and some less stressed, but 50% of people said their level of stress was unchanged. Burnout improved for most people. So three quarters of people, their, their, their perceived level of burnout improved and job satisfaction increased for about half of the people. So, you know, we've got half of the people, no change in stress and half of the people, no change in job satisfaction. So that, that surprises me if 70% report working less and having more time for other things and, and less work impact. So either stress and that is not actually coming from the work, but I don't, I don't know, Drew, what, what's your take on those results? So this doesn't surprise me given that overall we've only achieved a small reduction in how much people are working. You know, it would actually surprise me if, you know, people working just a few hours extra a week, suddenly everyone was reporting less stress, less burnout, more sleep, more positive emotions. That would be rather suspicious. You, the fact that, you know, a substantial minority of people achieved positive results and most people were unchanged, that I'd read as overall positive. But the warning sign is we've got a substantial minority that are positive and a sizable, you know, smaller but not insignificant number of people who have a negative effect. And I'd really want to know, you know, are these different groups of people? You know, who is it working for? Who is it not working for? Why are a lot of people not experiencing a change? Is it because they didn't really get the policy? The policy didn't actually give them the reduction? Or is it something else going on? Do they have mixed feelings? Yeah, Drew. So, so not much else to talk about in the individual results other than overall respondents were pretty happy. So of those 13 to 1400 survey responses, again, not knowing where they were, 90% said they wanted to continue with their, their current changes in their or their current working arrangements. And 96% had a preference for four-day weeks over five-day weeks. But again, that there didn't really surprise me that much. Like I would be, I'm, in some ways, I'm surprised that 4% of people actually want five-day work weeks instead of four-day work weeks for the same pay. That 4% surprises me, but the 96 and the 90% doesn't surprise me at all. D David, if you ask people on a survey, how blue is the sky? Uh, you know, never blue, sometimes blue, etc. Then you'll get 3 to 4% of people who say that the sky is green all of the time. So, yeah, asking people, you know, all else being equal, would you prefer to work for four days a week or five days a week? That's as close to is the sky blue question. <laughs> and 96% of people say, yes, the sky is blue. Give me a choice and I'd rather work less for the same pay. But I think the significant figure is actually that 90% said they want to continue under their current arrangements under the trial. So most people are actually happy with what their particular company is doing. And that is a fairly very positive result. Even if all of the like object, more objective measures about how much it's actually helping people are very mixed, people like it. 
Do we know that though, Drew? Like from a, do we know the question and how the question was worded? Because 90% said they wanted to continue. If they said, do you want to continue with what we're doing or go back to 40 hours? Or do we know whether they said, you know, I am satisfied with the current arrangements? Were they given alternatives or, or other things? Like they, they might be satisfied with this compared with the alternative, but they might not necessarily be that happy with the arrangements at all. Yeah, David, I believe the question was worded in, in do you want to continue with the current arrangements or go back to how things were? That 90% doesn't really surprise me. Again, 10% surprised me that they want to go back and work more again. So, <laughs> Remember, we've got something like 15% of people saying that they're now working more than they were before. Yeah, okay. So that 10% is less than the number of people who are more stressed, working more hours, experiencing more burnout. We've got 22 people, burnout is worse. Yeah. And only half of those people are saying they want to go back. So I think, Drew, I guess, I guess we're talking a lot about numbers and a lot about data, but this is a very broad research paper that's you know aggregated down into something like a white paper that's designed to be very compelling. And, and, and you can see that you know, we've got you know, literally tens, if not hundreds of questions that we don't know the answers to, that we would like to know the answers to, to know, you know the veracity of the claims that this report is making. Yeah. So hopefully the readers get the overall impression, which is these are very mixed results from a very uncertain method that are being spun as being unquestionably positive. And then they're not, they're mixed. And so Drew, the, the qualitative results section, like we said, there was sort of 23 interviews before and after with, with the executives. And I guess it was called perspectives from the shop floor, which is interesting because that was mainly conversations with CEOs. And it seems like there was a lack of frontline participation in any aspect of the qualitative research data. And so, so David, just, just a small correction, as well as the CEOs, they interviewed a small group in the middle of the trial of workers. But we're talking about 15 interviews and they didn't say whether these were like all from one company or which companies these were from. What we do know is that they definitely weren't from the shop floor because there were no retail participation in the trial. So these perspectives from the shop floor are a mix of CEO and office staff. But I still think this is really interesting qualitative data. So let's go into some of the things that they did ask and what they found. Yeah, so, I'll, so, so when they asked why CEOs wanted to participate in the trial, there was sort of some re reactions to you know, making changes post-COVID, it being a difficult labor market, trying to be a bit more attractive um, to employees. They want a competitive edge uh, in that space for you know staff retention, staff attraction, and they thought this might be an alternative to raising salary, salaries um, or just letting people work more from home. So if we can actually create the same productive output for the same cost, it means we may not have to create the same productive out output for rising costs if we have to raise salaries and things like that. So the typical things that you want a CEO to, to I guess, reasons they may be interested in doing something like this. David, I didn't include in that list. They've got some juicy quotes of CEOs sort of making themselves out to be like absolute saints, caring for the workforce, wanting to be humanitarian. I actually think that some of the people who went into this trial did it out of genuine humanitarian concern for their staff. I just don't think you can read much into that as data, what CEOs say are their reasons for doing things. So, Drew, I, I guess, I mean, the, the pro there was a general process and, and lead-in that, that companies followed for how to do this, uh, how to create the policy around this and how to get a pilot up and going and how to communicate with their staff and, you know, what opt-in agreements look like and how to devise some productivity initiatives to try to um, balance the reduced working hours with reduced workload and introducing software. So, do you want to sort of, let's talk through some of these points because the first 
idea is if we're going to reduce the number of hours people are working, which is a, the supply side of the equation, we sort of almost also need to reduce the demand side of the equation or obviously things just break. So I guess it's an opportunity to reflect on the amount of time wasting that goes on at work. Like is 20% of people's time a week maybe genuinely unproductive that we can afford to lose without the company losing any productive output? Do you want to sort of share some insights around that? So th- that is basically the overall theory behind this four-day workweek proposal, is you how, how is it possible to go from five days to four days? The assumption is that by making us work for five days, we're just spending a lot of unproductive time, a lot of make work, a lot of being at work because we have to. And so that's why people think it might be possible, is we're not trying to like accelerate the pace of work. We're trying to remove all of the unnecessary work. It's quite similar to something that the um, Vice-Chancellor of our university said when we were going through our um, COVID-related staff cuts. She just said, like, clearly, you know, we are losing a chunk of staff. The only way we can reasonably do this is if, as an organisation, we do less stuff. So as part of this process, we're not just reducing costs. We are looking at how can we do less stuff. And I think that's the attitude that which sort of everyone went into this trial with is, you know, how can we do less of the things that we think are unproductive? So like lots of these organizations said during this uh, preparation period, some of them went into quite formal, like auditing their work processes. Some of them did it more consultatively. Some of it did it more like just collaboratively, like as an organization, let's just do it. Let's just find all the things and get rid of them. So it sort of gives like this permission for people to say, oh, if we're going to go to four days weeks, then we'd better stop doing this. Uh, so we had... Uh, they gave examples of people who are looking at during the day travel time and how do they get rid of that. Automating things that could easily be automated. Uh, things that have multiple people doing them, just doing it with half as many people. So you know, if you have an hour-long meeting and only half as many people are there, then half of those people don't need to be there that day and you still get the same meeting done. Yeah, so draw a connection here to like lean engineering and that, like where's the waste and, and inefficiency in the company and and this is kind of like a forced way of saying we're going to work less hours, so we got to find we've got to find where where this sits in our business. And and I like the way you said giving permission to say, well, you know, we're only working four days now, so is it really critical that we do this? And so, Drew, what what else do you want to? I'll, I'll let you sort of pull out the themes from this um this this qualitative data. Okay, so, so one thing that I thought was worth talking about is. The way this is, like organizations try to say that we are working collaboratively with our workers. We want shared goals, shared values. The four-day work week is like a genuine shared goal for productivity. So for a lot of these organizations, it was like, okay, the company wants four days. The workers want four days. Let's work together to get there. And so it's quite different from normal efficiency initiatives where often workers will fight back against efficiency if they see that as just an excuse to make them do more work with less resources. You know, the company benefits, but what does the worker get out of things being more efficient, except having to work harder? Whereas here, there's like a genuine thing that the workers achieve. And it was interesting that a lot of the dissatisfaction came from organizations that did that explicitly, who set up like conditional KPIs and said, you know, you can only have the four-day week if you prove that you're going to achieve the productivity and if you maintain it. If the KPIs drop, we're going back to five days. Those companies had the least sort of buy-in and satisfaction from the qualitative results. That's where most of the complaints came from. Whereas people seemed quite to enjoy this collaborative, you know, let's just sort of work together and cut the week down from five days to four. And so Drew, if we can't 
reduce the demand like that. One of the other solutions is is achieving it by growing the workforce, right? So, so, and I think a couple of companies or two organisations said that they were going to recruit some additional people to achieve uh, the four day work week. So we can't quite get the work down enough. So we'll give those people the same pay, but we're going to bring on some more people. And then two other companies sort of said that they're that if they move to this four-day week permanently, then what they'll do is they'll increase their reliance on subcontractors and they wouldn't be engaging these subcontractors on the same sort of four-day week, five-day pay terms. They would be outsourcing some of the work in traditional working arrangements. Yeah, that, that one, it's only a small number of companies here. So we're talking four out of, I don't know, whether that's four out of 22 or four out of 44. But I think this is the warning sign for more operational organizations who might be thinking of the four-day week, is you know, what have we really achieved if our permanent employees have this sort of flexibility, but our solution is give it to a subcontractor organization who pay people less, have got less, less unionized, less controls over their work, less control over working hours, and we just end up with a whole bunch of employees who are not our employees who are working long hours in order for our people to have the four-day week. And that's just eerily similar to what sometimes happens with dangerous jobs and safety as organizations try to sort of like improve their management of hazards by outsourcing it to subcontractors who have no specialist expertise. They're just willing to subject their employees to more risk. So, Drew, there's, there's – yeah, I think I think that's right um, – so there's there's a few other things in this uh, in this in this data, this qualitative data, and you know people will will link the report in the show notes and in in the LinkedIn post. Uh, so you can sort of read through what you know what people actually said about about it in some more detail. Um, but Drew, I thought we'd move on to the sort of relationship between the company and what people did with the extra time, and then move on to some conclusions. Sorry, David, I know you're trying to sort of accelerate this. Can I just quickly pause on the list of ways that the companies improve productivity? Because I, th- I think we can just quickly read out that list is interesting. Uh, so we've got companies reforming the norms around meeting, meetings, uh, shorter meetings, less frequent meetings, clearer agendas and objectives, uh, improved email etiquette, etiquette, um, uh, basically CCing fewer people into emails, analyzing different steps of the manufacturing process, having designated focus periods each day for like heads down work with no, no talk. Reorganizing calendars so there's less multitasking, more dedicated time on individual tasks, and more creation of like task lists and to-do lists so that people hand over work and start the day more productively. Um, so there's some interesting things there that might actually be like good for the organization and good for the people. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, the, I was really interested that they even asked this question though, which is about what people did with the extra day. And it starts off sort of really wishy-washy about work-life balance. But then they asked the companies what they thought people did on the extra day. And that's where it got really fascinating because the companies were making assumptions about what people would do with the free time. And some of the companies seemed to think that they had a right over what people did with that extra day. So like the most extreme example of this is, are people allowed to go and do another job on their fifth day? And a lot of the companies just said, whoa, hold on a second. Yeah, that's your day, but it's your day so that you can relax, so that you're productive for me. You're not allowed to exhaust yourself on that fifth day by working for someone else. Even if my inability to afford my rent and cost of living crisis that's going on at the time means that the reason that half of the people have no change to their stress is maybe they actually, maybe this, you know, having eight hours more to their time just gives them eight hours more time to worry about stuff. Yep. 
And then some of the companies, uh, particularly like the charities, are thinking, okay, they get that extra day, they can do like volunteer work and be good for the community. And their employees are all playing video games instead. <laughs> and they're thinking, hold on, we, we wanted you to use this time productively and positively. Yeah, I think it is paternal idea, Drew, that um, you know, one of the examples was encouraging staff to share stories and bring pictures in of things that they did with their day off on message boards. It's kind of like in safety when we ask people to bring photos in of their children and you know, my reason for being safe is is my children. Like I think we make these paternal we, we just paint these assumptions that just overreach what organizations sort of should legitimately have as boundaries into people's private lives. So the researchers divided this into sort of three categories of disinterest, interest, and direction. So some companies just didn't care. We've given you the time back. It's your time. Other companies wanted to do this sort of paternal, you know, we're giving you this time, but we want you to come back and tell us how great this time was and what did you do with this time and how are you sharing more time with your family? And then direction is where companies want to try to like influence it and say what you could be doing or should be doing with the extra time or what you're not allowed to be doing with the extra time. And so it was yeah, really interesting given the sort of like philosophy of why we're having the fourth day that we get to this point, we've actually got quite an inconsistent view from the companies about what's the extra day actually for. So Drew, I want to throw some conclusions at you that from the report and, and get your views on it. So three, three conclusions and then some practical uh, takeaways. So the first conclusion is that the report claims that there is a business case for the four-day week based on productivity. Absolutely not. The way they're gathering the data means that those productivity figures cannot be trusted. Way too many caveats to claim that we know anything about whether these companies are more productive, less productive, or the same, or which subset have gone up or down. We have no idea from this. So we can't take this report and drop it on the table inside a real organization and say the business case is is clear. So the second claim in the report is that there are strong benefits for staff with changing these work arrangements. So that one's a bit better. There are some caveats. There are mixed results tending to be positive. It's good for some people. It's bad for some people. Within the sample of people that they surveyed, it's good for more people than it's bad for. But we don't really know which people it's good for and which people it's bad for. So that one is, yeah, probably positive, but you've got to be cautious. You might be good, but you've got to check, will this be good for us, for our employees? And then the report raises some really interesting qualitative data about the relationship between a goal like the four-day week and employee engagement in things like decluttering the and workplace improvement activities. And if you recall, when we did the Harwood Experiments episode from Kurt Lewin in, in the 1940s, I think that was somewhere in the 90s um, episode, numbered somewhere in the 90s, sort of raised a similar thing about how you can get employee engagement and collaboration around what the target should be and how to achieve them. So, Drew, what are your thoughts about that, that claim there? So, I think these researchers are looking to actually publish a couple of academic papers out of this, and I'm looking forward to them because I think there's some really insightful stuff. We can't tell from the limited way it's reported here. We need to know more about which organisations and who, at least some sense of who said what. But yeah, the, I think the like reasons organizations adopted it, the ways they went about adopting it, and some of the like motivations and sort of experiences of the CEOs, I think they do have some genuine quality qualitative data there that I'm looking forward to seeing that published properly um, and in more in fuller form. Yeah, great, Drew. Maybe you can get yourself on a peer review, find out which journal. So, Drew, takeaways. Do you want to share your your practical takeaways for people, you know, having listened to this episode, maybe going and reading this this white paper for themselves. 
Okay, so, so my first one is just my gripe when it comes to papers like this and using them as evidence. If you're talking about employee well-being, never ever use averages. Don't do it as an academic, don't do it in your own organisation. If 70% of people are happy and 30% of people are unhappy, don't say on a weighted scale we moved from 3.5 to 3.7. Go and find out why the 30% of people are unhappy. It's not a good, good way to use statistics at all. I'll let you keep going, Drew. You're on a roll. Okay. Second one is that I think there's a real lesson here about genuinely finding shared goals for people to work together when it comes to safety and well-being. I think the four-day work week shows that it doesn't have to be patronizing, that it can be a genuine shared goal to make what life better for everyone and good for the company. And so long as you're not being patronizing about it and you're not sneakily just trying to do it to be more efficient, I think things like this are genuinely good as just thought leadership of initiatives that we can take. I'm interested in your thoughts though on that one, David. Yeah, look, I think I think people who plan the battle don't battle the plan. So, you know, I, I like collaborative, well, collaborative decision making in general, but I really like it in relation to goal setting and and how how to achieve those goals. So if an organization was to say, we're committed to making this work and you know if we can get the same outcome for the organization and and workers can get a day off a week and we've all got to work together to figure out how to do this i think that's an incredibly productive environment so the final takeaway i think is really practical which is just be careful of burden shifting when you're trying to improve safety and well-being particularly burden shifting to other parts of the organization or to subcontractors when we try to make life easier for some people often that does just make life harder for other people and so we do need to like be really aware of whether we're genuinely helping or whether we're causing the improvement just by putting someone else at risk or making someone else work harder. I think also, yeah, the lack of equity in a workplace as well. And we see this in, in organizations who have pursued flexible work arrangements and they've got operational staff who do those things, like you said, operate equipment, drive trucks, uh, do field work, work genuine shift patterns, and they can't work from home and they can't choose which hours they work. And, you know, it creates a these dual, dual speed economies in organizations where we make things better for other workers. And one of the unintended consequences is it really damage our culture too. And particularly if in order for the people to be able to work at home, those frontline people then have to fill out more paperwork to facilitate the working from home. So Drew, the paper claims that the results are in uh, and quite, quite and, and claims it a success for the first day week. So the question we asked in this episode is, could a four-day working week lead to happier, healthier, and safer workers? Do we, do we know the answer to that? Uh, well, certainly it could, but the results are definitely not in. We've got a short, uncontrolled trial at an unusual time across an unrepresentative group of company, and even then it produced mixed results. So we've got this interesting, promising idea of the four-day week. I personally love the idea but it requires a lot more rigorous examination before we just say like, you know, yes, we can put this in front of our companies and say, you expect them to just think that the business case is already made. It's not, I wouldn't put this in front of my own organization and say, look, here's the evidence we should just do this. It's a good idea that we should be very cautious about, but promoting as a good idea. Thanks, Drew. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 